0: Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. This is part one of my conversation with Olaf and Jerek from MoneyU, a local bank based here in Amsterdam, Netherlands. And we've got some great talking points around the vendor lock-in and how MoneyU as a financial institution got on the path of going fully serverless. Hi, Anne. Hi. Thanks Anne. for having us. Thanks. And uh, yes, I've met you guys a few times and I'm really impressed by what you guys have been doing with Serverless and also the fact that MoneyU being a, a financial company and taking this really brave decision to go full in on Serverless. Maybe let's start by talking about what do you guys do? Uh, what is MoneyU and uh, you know, what are your roles here?
1: Okay, MoneyU is a, is a bank. Uh, we are a daughter bank of the uh, ABN Emro, which is one of the top three banks in the Netherlands and uh, we have a, a number of financial products that we offer our customers in the Netherlands and in Germany and, and most people here in the Netherlands would know us from our uh, savings product which is done completely online we don't have any physical branches but at this moment we are focusing a lot on setting up our uh, payments product which is uh, an app you download the app you get to onboard so you uh, we we get to know you Need to know information about you. You need to scan your passport. You need to take a selfie, and uh, at the end of the process, uh, you get a fully functioning uh, bank account and you get a card. You can use that for your payments and your and your savings. And this is uh, this is what we do. Jan uh, y- is of course here, but uh, for people not here, we are we are not in what you would think of as a classical uh, banking office. We are uh, situated in uh, Amsterdam East. On a university campus, uh, we have three floors here. We uh, develop this proposition and we run all the operations and everything that comes with it from three floors with a relatively low amount of, uh, of people working here. I work here as the uh, principal architect. So I get to uh, think and plan and come up with a strategy on how we build this proposition and how we continue to evolve it. And
2: next to me is Jared. Yeah, I'm here as a cloud architect. and Together we're setting up our frivolous platform facilitate uh, the, the workloads that uh, make up the, uh,
0: the banking app. Okay, so in terms of the workload you guys are doing, what are some of the things that you are actually building? You see, uh, APIs, is it going to be a lot of uh, background data processing, BI, and uh, machine learning.
1: We have, uh, at, at the moment, we, we are not fully serverless. So uh, we have a core banking system that uh, doesn't run serverless at least not at the moment, and we actually uh, come from a background where we uh, used to work with uh, uh, partner organizations that used to write the software and and host the software for us. And this was typically done on on VMs, on a mission-critical cloud. So this is a, a private cloud that we use as a corporate data center. Over the last two, two and a half years, perhaps. We have been adopting the strategy to in-source more of the software development and also the operational responsibility to come, that comes with that, and we have chosen to uh, select AWS serverless as the target platform to do so. So, as you can imagine, we've been providing financial services on our IT systems for ten years now, and that means also that two two and a half years ago, we already had a lot of legacy. Mm-hmm. So we started to incrementally move these workloads to AWS and then specifically AWS serverless because we really wanted to stay away from all the overhead that comes with having to manage your own operating systems, your instances, your VPCs. We started with, well, small, but then as it turned out, significant steps. <laughs> we, we started with, for instance, the, uh, the address book in the payment app that we have. It's a very simple function. It's it's easy to think about. There's a little risk associated with it. And we started uh, creating a proof of concept with AWS Serverless in which the contacts that you use when you do a payment uh, to somewhere else, you would be able to manage in this first workload that we plotted on AWS Serverless. And it effectively just was. It was a DynamoDB to store the uh, contacts. uh, There's a couple of lambdas that allow us to... uh, uh, read, update, and or delete these contacts, uh, and we have an API gateway with a custom authorizer where we can use our alt- authentication services that we use for the application to to verify the identity of the user. And this is this was our starting point close to two years ago, and 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 from there on we started to build new functionality on AWS, AWS serverless. Over time, this uh, grew in in number and and also in complexity and criticality. Looking back, we have developed a lot of different systems on uh, on AWS. Uh, Most of it uh, is still supporting our payment proposition. So this is uh, uh, front-end facing, typically runs behind the API gateway, uh, and typically is there to support our
0: uh, mobile application that's used by the customers. So that's I think that's a quite a classic migration pattern where you start with something not so business critical, and then you sort of gradually you use this as a stranger pattern to take more and more of your monolith and put them into this sort of brave new world where it's, you know it's serverless. Another question I had, I guess this is more for you, uh, Jared, is um, how many teams do you guys have working with serverless today, and how do you guys go about in terms of uh, the operational overhead? Do the developers own everything end-to-end? Are they on core for your services? How do you guys go about changing the culture of enabling developers to own more of the application? So our strategy
2: was not to lift and shift workloads into AWS because that's just basically moving stuff. Mm-hmm. And it solves some complexity. But um, So we focused on basically developing new features. And we currently have around five teams that are working with serverless. We do want them to own it, right? So you build it, you own it. We are doing DevOps, um, though not everybody is participating in it because our teams are mixed. Some are on on your payroll, some are external. So we we try to get the talent together that we need to quickly develop and move forward. But yes, so basically what they do is they develop the features uh, more or less end-to-end. And we deploy it fully automated using GitLab CI and uh, CI CD processes there.
0: So you said the teams own it. Can you maybe explain in terms of what does that actually mean you own it? Uh, I guess uh, part of that means you own the architectural decisions on uh, what services to use, uh, how to deploy things, when to deploy them. But do you also become responsible for the uptime as well?
2: yes so basically we do have a design process where the platform team and the architects are involved uh, to make sure that we don't take decisions that would, would take away from our target availability or right. resilience etc because uh, we do have a lot of uh, constraints there mm-hmm. uh, uh, but luckily using AWS services that is typically uh, very easy <laughs> so it's a simple it's a simple process of just making sure you use all the best practices and uh, and, and really think about, uh, let's say, all the edge cases. So that design process is done in collaboration with the architects. But uh, yes, the team develops the software, they're in charge of testing, and they can decide basically when to deploy new features uh, through production. We're using tools like OpsGenie, so uh, so we know almost instantly when stuff is, uh, is going wrong. Our experience actually, uh, thus far is that it doesn't break <laughs> more or less. So there's, there's hiccups and obviously, so most of the errors we get are actually connectivity errors to, to backend services that are hosted on premise. Right. And that's actually the majority of issues. So Lambda, DynamoDB, SQS, SNS, step functions has all proved to be extremely reliable and actually Never cause errors that are outside of our, our own fault. So it's either a programming error or some some backend service uh, not <laughs> available. Uh, but that's done on premise. So providing support, operational support, and DevOps duty has
0: been a breeze. Okay. And that support is that coming from the development team itself, or do you have like a centralized support team? Well,
2: interestingly enough, we both participate in the in the DevOps duty. So uh, okay. we have uh, duty. Uh, Once every week. And well, I haven't been missing any sleep. (laughs) That's pretty good. Or at least not because of
1: DevOps. (laughs) (laughs) Having having to add to that, we do give our teams a lot of responsibility and also autonomy and and design decisions. Still, because uh, we do have to conform to all sorts of risk and compliance frameworks, we have invested a lot in making sure that we have all the right guardrails in place. We invested a lot in our multi-account setup, we know exactly what permissions is needed. We have a lot of operational tasks that developers might need to do as part of their DevOps duty, but we have alarms on these. And there is always, retroactively, a point in which from within the platform team, we need to go back and we need to be able to understand what somebody did and why. Uh, so yes, we, we do give our software development teams a lot of autonomy uh, and a lot of responsibility, but staying in control to us is even more important. And, and there has been a lot of work that has gone into that
0: okay let's touch on the some multi-account organization a bit later because what you guys have built here is quite impressive uh, for now you mentioned risk and risk frameworks many people would create sort of being in finance uh, with risk averse decision making or you know, don't want to touch any anything new you know, the cloud is, is new we don't understand this it's dangerous how do you guys came about being a bank in the Netherlands and still going on this brave journey into this serverless thing where so many of your, I guess, competitors are still, okay, we don't want to go into the cloud because it's not safe, it's not secure, it's not X, Y, and Z. How did that decision came about for you guys? Actually, luckily,
1: being part of the ABN, ABN is, I think, one of the banks in the Netherlands, and I must say, I don't know the other banks that well, but I think they have been quite advanced in adopting the public cloud And this, of course, was very helpful for us because being part of the ABN, thinking and planning our software on AWS uh, allowed us to work together with the departments from within ABN that have been able to, uh, that have already done so, and also helped us to adopt their thinking and their approach to uh, risk and our compliance when it comes to the public cloud. We were looking for an application development platform that fits our company and fits the assignment that we have from within the ABN. And for us, keeping a effective or an efficient organization is, is very important. We are, we are three floors, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say we are, we are not that big, maybe 150 people that work here. And we have huge ambitions. And with, uh, with the number of people we have and, and the efficiency we would like to keep in the organization, which is, we we can't build our own data centers uh, we can't start managing our own vms we we can't get into vulnerability scanning on hosts or, or manual steps and remediating these risks so what we've been looking for is a platform where we can effectively outsource most of the complexity benefit from the services that that aws offers us uh, as serverless and and that became our thing right we would like to outsource the complexity that comes with building
2: or maintaining infrastructure and
1: where we see our value is, is building on top of these services.
2: And one of the traditional approach to risks is the, the, the risks for a bank and the risk frameworks are, are not changing that frequently, right? So, so given the, the long history of, of IT within banks, a lot of traditional solutions that address all the risks uh, or all the, all the controls that the risks uh, require have been more or less uh standard solutions and the bank uh, banks have been building on top of that mm-hmm. uh to develop new features we have been given the room to actually maybe go back to look at the original risk and then try to see how we can essentially mitigate the risk without using looking at the traditional approach of building a castle defense mm-hmm. uh building uh, seven walls but really look at at the risk and how we could, in a new way, define controls that address these risks. And serverless has essentially given us a very good solution, built on top of all the security that AWS offers and their their rigorous internal process of making sure that they're compliant with, with all the standard. So true. It, it always starts, and people forget this, but it always starts with
1: understanding the risk. Mm -hmm. Because people tend to uh, want to jump ahead and and look at ways to mitigate your risk or solutions that are used to mitigate a certain risk. But you need to always understand the risk, understand the problem you're solving it and and have a framework or a model Mm -hmm. uh, that allows you to reason about this. Either, Either mitigate, sometimes accept it.
2: And, but that requires a lot from your CISO basically, uh, in terms of being able to actually reason about the risks. And some can actually under, some actually understand the risk. And a lot of CISOs are just basically following their playbook and, and, and or their script and saying, well, this is the risk. So this must be the control <laughs> that addresses the risk. And so it takes a, a special kind of CISO. And, and we've had the fortune, we were fortunate enough to, to have a good uh, CISO gave us this, this room. And I think that's key. If you don't have that then you're gonna it's gonna be a struggle and you're gonna probably get very frustrated uh <laughs> trying to explain something to a person that just is not susceptible or open to that. Yeah. To, and
1: to all the people listening to the podcast, you're 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 probably in on a joke, but this 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 world is changing, right? It is. And if your approach to risk is to want to control the lot of it, then you're you're becoming a dinosaur. This is not going to work, and uh, even less so towards the future. You don't need control to mitigate risk. And, and and somehow people got this with SaaS, right? It doesn't seem counterintuitive for a large enterprise to, to contract a CRM in the cloud as a SaaS. But then somehow when it becomes about building software on top of these uh, SaaS or BaaS services, people somehow get nervous.
2: But it's very irrationally so. Our CISO was actually uh, open to this because he also realized that by using serverless, his life would be much easier, right? So uh, so less, less work, less headache because, yes, AWS does manage all the risks and uh, they are complying to all the, the SOC 2s and the, and the ISO standards. All that complexity is actually moved into vendor management. And uh, it's still important, right? But is no longer giving you a huge headache as a CISO because most of the controls are dealing with operating system security, network uh, security, penetration, uh, network penetration testing, monitoring users logging into servers and then restricting that and then but still allowing them to do their job and then logging that also and then trying to distill like intelligence from all that like log data there's so much complexity there and for serverless i mean try to log into a lambda I don't know. <laughs> right it's, uh, so we have none of that and that allows us to stay lean and, and mean and really focus on delivering business value and and that is ultimately uh for us being a small but ambitious bank that is where it
0: counts i think that's a really key message there that you have to understand the problem or rather than just try to copy the solution from everybody. Uh, I remember there's a really good line from, uh, Simon Wadley. So he's known for, uh, Wadley mapping, the value tree mapping. I love Wadley. Yeah. He's got this really fun example of, uh, if you are a general and you want to be successful, uh, you bomb hills because 80% of other successful generals also bomb hills. Doesn't matter why they do that. You just, you know, copy and you hope that there's causality there, but that's not the case. You had to understand why were they bombing hills in the first place, understand what the core problem is before you try to apply the same solution and hope to get the same results. Yeah, you and the context understand. is changing, right? Context, exactly. Context is king. Really great you guys have mentioned that. I guess in this case, when you guys decided to go on this journey of going serverless, have there been any sort of major challenges or tooling limitations or problems that have made life difficult for you?
1: Yes, plenty. <laughs> yes, plenty. <laughs> no, it, 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 it starts with, I, I, I always, we, we, we had this, we, we had this uh, make or break moment where we had our first tiny successes. I was in a program uh, uh, meeting and this was about where would we build the next feature. And of course, you have different people at the table. Um, our, our COO was there and uh, people from the program, uh, or the product organization were there. I was there. And of course, there's this tension and, and unease because you want to quickly be able to develop your next, your next feature or your next increment and, and, and using a new platform entails risk, right? Now, luckily, luckily, uh, this is not even my doing, but our, our COO was really set on, on, on allowing ourselves to take time to build up our own development platform. He banged his fist on the table. <laughs> He said, "This is going the direction of serverless."
2: Period. That's just to name one, right? And it makes a lot of sense because it, it, I think right now, if, especially if you're in the direct-to-consumer market, I think the successful companies of the future will be software companies, mm-hmm. right? Because if you're not a software company and you're developing, you want to have bring an innovative proposition to to consumers or even business-to-business if you are not a software company you are relying on others to build that for you so either you need a big bag of money or a lot of patience uh, because you'll be last and so if you want to stay in control of your own destiny Become a software company. And that's what one of you has been doing in sourcing this delivery capability. And, um, and I think that's a key strategic decision. And the CEO made rightfully so made that decision at, at right at that moment and said, this is how we're going to go forward. And uh, frankly, given a company this size and the ambitions, there's, there's no other way. And I think that
0: applies to a lot of companies. Yeah. If you look at the, you just need to look at the top, uh, I guess top hundred companies in the world today by, Revenue by any metric, uh, uh, the top, eighty uh, percent of the top ten is just going to be software companies. Mm-hmm. I think apart from uh, uh, that, the oil company in and the, the
2: defense probably. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe defense maybe companies. Defense
0: companies, companies uh, <laughs> yeah. Apart from even the defense companies are now more and more becoming technology focused Absolutely. because the future of war is also going to be technology, right? We are a fintech,
2: right?
1: Yep. And, we, and we used to work with partners. Interestingly enough, so this has been quite a journey over the last year and a half to build this digital delivery organization. Now, in the last couple of months, we've added quite a bit of developers to our payroll. And by that time, there was already a bit of buzz like this. We're building a bank on serverless. And if you understand how cool that is, you should, you should, should come work for us. And, and the people we now got, they're, they're really talented. They really understand why. They chose to work here, but they also bring great energy and it's it's now over the go- last couple of months, and, and the chair there is nodding because he agrees it brings so much good vibe and so much good energy to to have your own people and to build your own software and to be, to be able to to manage this top to bottom and take mm-hmm. operational responsibility looking bad we've achieved a lot of great things here
0: yeah as a software engineer uh, there's nothing more frustrating than not being in control of your decisions. I've been so many companies where and also I know many companies that uh working that way where the software developers are essentially stifled of creativity of autonomy where it really feels that you are just being paid to suffer uh, as opposed to it being what it should be which is a creative job where you can take a lot of your own initiative to the table and create business value very rapidly and i think a lot of things you guys talk about today and a lot of things i've seen in my own sort of career is that when you give developers that autonomy and give them the guidance and context rather than micromanaging every decision you're going to get much happier people much more productive people also you're going to create so much value more quickly and more cost-efficiently as well so going back to the question i had around challenges uh, what are some of the main platform limitations and tooling limitations that uh, you experience day-to-day working with serverless that's a great question one of the things we ran into a
1: lot is is a perceived problem. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I, I don't believe it's a big problem, but it's it's perceived to be a big problem, which is uh, code-based portability. So we had, I don't know how many talks with people that were building their software in Kubernetes because it's supposed to be more portable. And, and this is also to mitigate the risk of vendor lock-in, right? Our problem has not been portability, but more than anything, the perception of our lack of ability to mitigate this risk. And I, to be honest, so risk is impact times likelihood. So the likelihood of us needing to move from one uh, public cloud to, to the other is, uh, is probably not that big. And, and, and then the impact, honestly, if you think about it, we use, we use the serverless.org framework. Uh, we use uh, runtimes that are very default. These services on AWS are pretty much on par with the services that any other public cloud could offer. I don't think there's a lot of risk there, but you run into the perception of it.
2: And it's interesting because this is one of the key controls that also the regulators uh, basically require banks to at least think about is what is your exit strategy? And the question actually is quite literally on the form, do you have an exit strategy? But that's it. So do you have an exit strategy? And that is perceived as we need to be... That is somehow translated into we need to be able to move from one cloud provider to the next within a limited time frame. And that's not the question. The question (laughs) is, do you have an exit strategy? Because if you don't, you should probably get one. And the exit strategy could be we're not going to take the revolutionary approach by just moving everything, lift and shift uh, within a couple of weeks, and therefore we need to run on Kubernetes. No, we can say basically, no, we're going to use the evolutionary approach and just move workloads gradually to another cloud, and probably new possibilities will be there to make that easier. We are using serverless framework, and we make an effort to separate the handlers from the business logic. And that in itself means that all the business logic, including interacting with our backend systems, is essentially portable because that code is not tied into how Lambda executes. For instance, if we're talking about Lambda, and we use the standard like software uh, patterns like DAOs and, and services, etc. So if you if you kind of take that, then the impact of actually moving it to another cloud provider and having to basically use, I don't know, table instead of DynamoDB, or, or then the impact is very low because basically these services are more or less dropping replacements. Uh, so the, the AWS uh, DynamoDB service is almost the same as the Azure uh, equivalent, including if you look at the, the, the actual service limits, like maximum row size or record size. or it. So yes, Cloud providers are closely monitoring and copying each other, I, I feel. And that besides the, the low risk that AWS at some point would double their prices or something, right? So in, in, the trend has been quite the opposite.
0: Yeah, I was actually looking at some data over the last, uh, I think, six, seven years, there's not been a single price hike. There's been lots of uh, price reductions, even though it was sometimes they count one, Price reduction for for one service in one region. Uh, sometimes it's for the whole service. Uh, so, but still, there's just no data to suggest that they're ever gonna just you know, spike the price. Uh, and also, given that it's a competitive market, it's getting more competitive, getting Absolutely. bigger all the time. There's no business in- incentives for them to jack out the price. Absolutely. And um, I think what the, all of you mentioned as well—that whole point about it being much bigger perceived risk than actually being a risk—I think that's reached the point where if you ask 100 companies what is the biggest challenges you face today, no one is going to say portability near the top 10 or top 100. And yet, they're making all these technical decisions upfront yeah. because of this perceived risk of portability, which I think to me is just crazy. It doesn't make any sense. Again, goes back to the point of understanding what is the actual risk and what is the proportional response to that risk as opposed to just, well, everyone's talking about this vendor-locking thing. Maybe we should think about it. So...
2: Yeah, and we've had examples example of of sister companies to to money, also daughter companies of ABN that were then actually saying that they were kind of reluctant to use AWS because of vendor lock-in, but then had no trouble in building everything on Mendix, for instance, right? uh...
0: (laughs) Yeah, and also that whole lock-in thing is, I hate this word lock-in because it's never lock-in, it's a coupling cost, there's a cost of moving. But you can always move with enough effort and time. Yeah. Uh, it's never really a true lock-in per se. And also you're always locked into something anyway. Yeah. And there's a huge opportunity gain. Huh? So imagine having to build
1: all the, the services and abstraction layers that you that you get from a public cloud vendor if you go all in, all, all the benefits you get from there. Like one of the things I love about AWS is that everything is integrated with uh, identity access management. Yeah. The work that you would need to put into uh, implementing uh, fine-grained, least-privileged identity access management over different services, uh, from perhaps different third-party providers in different models, that cost is, is not there, which becomes your benefit. So there's, there's a huge opportunity benefit in, in modeling your IT landscape towards a single cloud provider.
0: So this is part one of my conversation with Olaf and Jarek at MoneyU. Please come back next week for part two of this conversation. If you want to access show notes or the transcript for this episode, please go to realworldserverless.com. I'll see you guys next time.